What a great grace God has. What great debt we owe to him. What a wonderful Savior we have. Our sermon text today is Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. If you're able, once more out of respect for God's word, please stand as I read to you. This is the inspired word of God. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would speak to us this morning. Speak clearly, speak speak loudly to us. Speak to us through your word for your purposes, for the sake of Christ Jesus, your son. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. If you ever go out to dinner at a restaurant, as I'm sure we've all done at some point, I know you get to the end of the meal and and, uh, what the standard practice is, is that point you ask for the bill, right? You ask for the bill because you want to know how much you owe, right? That's essentially what you're doing when you're asking for the bill, you're asking, how much do we owe? What do we owe? That's the question that you want answered in that moment. In much of life, we don't think this way, though, do we? We, we like to think of ourselves as being more self-made than that, right? We, I, I owe nobody anything. I just am responsible to myself. That's kind of the, the natural human way of thinking, but no matter how hard you've worked in life to become what you are and to gain what you've gained, the reality is you really do owe a lot. Because no matter who you are, there are certain blessings that are yours simply for no other reason than where you were born, or to whom you were born, or when you were born. Right? If we lived in Antarctica 2,000 years ago, our lives would be really different than they are right now, right? So we have blessings that are ours through the grace of God and through his providence. We certainly ought to realize there is something that we owe. And today we're going to look precisely at what we owe in two specific spheres. What we owe to government and what we owe to God. Before we go into that discussion, though, we have to do some background work. So I'm going to give you some some background information. And if you're a note-keeping type, 
You'll notice that on the sermon notes page here, we've got kind of an outline of, of what we owe Caesar and, and what we owe God. But over here on the other side, under the sermon text, there's a whole bunch of blank space. This intro part, if you want to write notes, put them over there because we'll have more space there. We're going to get to this stuff in just a little bit. But today's text begins, of course, where we left off last week, as is our practice here. Jesus had told the parable of talents about the religious leaders of Israel. You'll recall that they, they feared the people. So they, they wanted to arrest Jesus, but because they feared the people, they instead went away. And we read today, after going away, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. That's, that's why we see these two groups of people together, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. They're kind of strange bedfellows. We wouldn't expect to see them together. The Herodians were those who were in league with Herod, of course, who, who was kind of in league with Rome, right? Rome had put Herod in power. These were the people that supported him. So they were kind of the, the supporters to Rome, seen by many throughout Israel as turncoats, as traitors. Then there's the Pharisees who are more in line with the general populace of Israel, right? They're, they're going to tend to be in favor of, of looking forward to a Messiah who they believe is going to deliver them from Rome. And so they're kind of at loggerheads with each other. We might expect uh, a, a similar type thing just about as much as we'd expect to read. You know, uh, we were talking about some, some things politics-wise and uh, and. Barack Obama and Donald Trump came together to share their thoughts. To, you know, and like, well, wait a second. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, it would kind of tip us off that there, maybe there's something kind of screwy going on here, right? And indeed there was. Indeed there was. Uh, we, we see that the, the Pharisees were up to something as, with the Herodians. And it's not the first time that this has happened. You might recall way back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus has healed the man with the withered hand. And we read in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. It's amazing, isn't it, how the gospel unites people? <laughs> now, we, we, we don't tend to think of it in that way with, with them, but that's what it's doing. Right? Generally, we think of the gospel uniting people. We think of those who follow Christ. And, and it unites people from all sorts of different backgrounds. We might be old. We might be young. We might be, we might be, uh, we might be from America. We might be from Africa. We might be from all kinds of different cultural backgrounds. We might have different political backgrounds. We might have all kinds of different beliefs. But the gospel brings us together as we trust in Christ Jesus. We see that even from his own uh, 12 apostles that followed him. There was, on the one hand, Matthew, sometimes called Levi. He was a tax collector, right? He was kind of like the Herodians in league with Rome, collecting money for them, seen as a turncoat by many of the people. At, on the other hand, there was Simon the Zealot, who was also a disciple of Jesus. The Zealots were those who were in favor of not just waiting for the Messiah to come, but of a violent overthrow of the Roman government to get them out. And so these two radically different people from radically different backgrounds with radically different ideas come together and are united beneath the banner of the gospel with Christ Jesus. 
But the reality is it also unites people who are against Christ Jesus, right? And that's what we see in today's text. We see the Pharisees, the Herodians, those who are against him, and they come to him with this, with this kind of sneaky scheme that they've hatched to try to get Jesus, to trip him up. And they say to him, teacher, we see that you're true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances, but truly you teach the word of God. Such nice words they offer him. Such kind and, and, and charitable words. The only problem is they don't actually believe them, right? I mean, Indeed, Jesus is a teacher, he's a rabbi, he is true. In fact, he doesn't just speak the truth, he is the truth. He doesn't care about uh, appearances and about anybody's opinion. He does truly teach the word of God and the way of God, but that's not what they believed. They came at him with flattery because they are hoping to trip him up. They're hoping to trap him. And so they ask him this very, very loaded Question, is it, lawful, <clears throat> is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You see, when the Pharisees and the Herodians combine in asking this question, we have to remember who they are. They're this unlikely pairing. And they're looking for different answers from Jesus in this. But regardless of what Jesus answers, they know that they can catch him one way or the other. You see, because if Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians will say, yay, Jesus is on our side. He's in our camp. He's, he's a member of our party. But the Pharisees will say, how dare you? And they'll rally the people up against him at that point. And they will, will see to it that the people would realize that Jesus isn't for them. He's for those rotten Romans. But on the other hand, if he were to say, no, don't pay those taxes to the Romans. Don't pay those taxes to Caesar. The Pharisees will say, yay, Jesus is on our side. He's a member of our party. But the Herodians will say, wait a second. And they'll go to Rome and they'll say, you can't let this guy go about. He's, he's breaking the law. He's fomenting rebellion against you. <clears throat> but Jesus knew their hypocrisy and says to them, why put me to the test? It recalls his words to Satan in the wilderness when he was tempted. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test and make no mistake of it. It is Satan who stands behind this testing of Jesus here, ultimately. It is Satan who is trying to pull Jesus into one political party or into another political party so that he can kind of be their mascot, as it were. But Jesus is not interested in going into either of the two parties. He is interested in standing for the truth, so he is having none of what they're doing, and he responds, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, a denarius was a silver coin. It, it was worth about one day's wages for a laborer in the ancient Roman world. And it was specifically the cost of a certain tax. It was kind of a, a head tax that, that had been levied that was 
brought uh, against the people for the cost of being part of the Roman Empire, right? There are certain benefits that come with being in the Roman Empire, right? You have the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. You don't have to worry about uh, invaders coming in, right? Because we've got everything under control. There's an ordered society. There's a legal system that mostly kind of works for everybody. Sometimes maybe not for everybody, but you know, the idea is that it will anyway. Uh, there's, there's good roads for travel. There's, there's a system of commerce that works to the benefit of of everybody. There, there are all these benefits of being in Rome, and so you have to pay this denarius tax once a year. But there, that's the responsibility, right? Because where there are benefits, there are responsibilities. And so, so that's this tax, but not everybody loved it, you can imagine. Uh, there, there was, in fact, when it was instituted in the year 6 AD, so it had only been around for about 25 years at this point. It, it had been instituted in 6 AD, and there was a man named Judas of Galilee. And Judas of Galilee had actually, had actually kind of protested this tax being implemented. And he, he had said, according to the historian Josephus, he said, uh, it said that he called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay tribute to the Romans and putting up with mortal masters in the place of God. And he actually led an armed rebellion against Rome, which was quickly squashed. <laughs> and it was put down. But we need to understand that this lies in the background, right? It's only been 25 years since this has happened. Only one generation away. People remember it. And thus the question for Jesus the Galilean <laughs> is, are you like Judas the Galilean? Are you willing to be a good Roman citizen? Or do you think that God should be your only ruler? So they brought him this, they brought him this coin, this denarius. And we, we actually have these today. They're, they're in the world. Yeah, I actually went on eBay the other day. You can actually buy one if you've got a spare five, six, seven hundred dollars, right? You can buy a, a Roman denarius from this era of 17 to 34 AD, right? And, and so we can look at it. I looked at this picture of it and saw exactly what it looks like. And there's, there's an image on the one side of Tiberius Caesar, who is, who is the ruler at the time in the Roman Empire. And it says two things on that side. They're kind of abbreviated and they're in Latin. So I had to trust what everybody was telling me about it. But, but it said that, that it says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, saying who it is that's the, uh, the person imaged there. And then it says, son of the divine Augustus. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty hefty claim, isn't it? Son of God? Wow. On the back, if you flip it over, there's actually a picture of him seated in a high priest's garb. And it says, Pontif Maxim, short for Pontifex Maximus, high priest. So what we see on this coin is, is Caesar is claiming not just to be king, but also the son of God and the high priest. And so Jesus takes this coin and he shows it to people, and looks, looks at the image and the inscription on it that they're familiar with. 
And he says to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Right? There's certain claims here being made by Caesar. So, so we render to him the things that are his on those things that he is rightly claiming. But there are some things he is claiming that are prerogatives of no earthly king, but rather are only the prerogatives of God. And so he says also, render to God the things that are God's. You see, that word render is not a word we normally use. It, it doesn't just mean give as like a gift. It means, it means to give somebody their due, to, to give something what they're owed. And so the question comes, I told you there was gonna be some background information, now we're actually into the outline. What do we owe Caesar? And what do we owe God? First off, what we owe Caesar is, according to this passage, it looks like we, we owe Caesar our required taxes. Right? It seems pretty straightforward. The, the, there are taxes that the laws of the land require for us to pay. And Jesus is saying here that we need to pay them. It's a consistent biblical message. In Romans 13, verse 6, Paul says, Because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. So we might feel that the taxes are too high, or we might feel that they, they are uh, used to pay for things that, that we disagree with. But Jesus says we are bound to pay them. So in our, our context, each April we fill out our, our forms and we send them into the IRS. And, and if we owe taxes, we send a check along with it or do an electronic payment or however we happen to pay them. And, and that's something that we understand is our responsibility. I think we understand that for the most part, but the reality is there's also other things that I know happen sometimes. There are those who, who maybe uh, have a job that's not quite, uh, uh, let's say, as above board as many others, right? And, and I've had people tell me even, you know, well, I'm so glad I, you know, I get paid cash, which is great, because then I don't have to pay any taxes. Right? And what they mean by that is, you know, then I can get around paying the taxes that I'm required to pay. Right? Because the government has no record of it, so I can steal their money since nobody... Wow, kind of a different way to look at it, you know? Jesus says you owe your taxes. You are to pay what is owed. And while that's the obvious first implication of what Jesus says here about what we owe Caesar, it goes much deeper than that. Secondly, we owe a qualified obedience. Romans 13 again, verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. The psalmist puts it this way. He says, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. No human has ever risen to a position of power and authority apart from the sovereign plan and providential workings of God. God ordained Joe Biden to be president of the United States. God also ordained Donald Trump to be president. God ordained Barack Obama and George W. Bush and Bill Clinton and 40 other men before that. Each person who has become president of the United States has done so because it was God's plan 
that they would. But understand this, God's ordaining does not equal God's endorsing, right? Just because he has ordained something to happen, it doesn't mean that he's endorsing that it's good. Right? He raises up rulers for different purposes. David, he rose up to be a mighty king. Nebuchadnezzar, he rose up to, to carry God's people off into exile. Solomon, he rose up to build the temple. Nero, he rose up to be a merciless persecutor of the people of God. He raises up rulers for different reasons, but the fact remains God raises them all up. So no matter how we personally feel about rulers or their rules, we are bound to follow. We don't get to pick and choose which ones we should obey. 1 Peter 2, verse 13 puts it this way. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, when the Bible talks about freedom, it's not saying that we're free to do whatever we want. One, one commentator put it this way. He says, Christians are called to freedom, but it's not political freedom of the zealots who recognize God alone as their Lord and King and therefore attack the Roman occupying troops. Right? The idea is that when we are free, we are free from sin and from the law. The world is no longer held us bound. We're free to serve God and serve others. See, we're called to be servants of God. That's what we're called to. And one of the ways we do this is by rendering obedience to the government. Note, I, I call this a qualified obedience. That's because there are some exceptions, and we'll get to those in just a couple minutes, but, but it's the general posture of obedience that should mark us. It's not just that o obedience that's required of us. Plenty of us obey authorities, and, and we do so in the worst ways possible. We obey the law, but while we do so, we mock the authorities, and we misrepresent them, and we are hateful toward them, and in all of this, we disrespect them, which leads us to the other thing we owe Caesar, an appropriate respect. Back in Romans 13, when it talked about paying taxes, it mentioned in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom they are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is is owed. Now you might say, Pete, the authorities over me, uh, I deem them to be not worthy of respect, <laughs> right? They've acted disrespectfully. They've acted dishonorably. And so they're no longer deserve our honor or respect, but God says differently. Again, in 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. You know who was the emperor when Peter wrote this? The emperor was Nero. 
Nero, who was emperor from 54 AD to 68 AD, one of the most infamous rulers who ever lived. He murdered his own mother. He murdered his first wife. He allegedly murdered his second wife. He reportedly, it seems, uh, started the great fire of Rome for the very high reason of wanting to rebuild the city with a new city center with his palace there. He subsequently blamed the Christians for the fire and persecuted them severely. Christians were tortured and executed under Nero, sometimes by crucifixion, sometimes torn apart by wild dogs, sometimes lit as human torches to light up Nero's gardens at night. This is the emperor that Peter writes Christians should honor. You see, there, there may never have been an environment that was more harsh and hostile toward the church than the environment of the early church. This one that Peter was writing during when he said, honor the empire. We, we, we think our world is, getting, is bad and getting worse, and it, it, it in many ways is. It is hard for the church, and in many ways, it would seem it's never been worse, but it has been. And in those times when it was worse, we were told to honor those in authority. Of course, we don't have an emperor, right? We don't have an emperor. We have a separation of powers. Our founding fathers realized that, that it, it's a good that we separate those powers because to have one person in charge is too much. And so when we apply this biblical notion to our context, we see that we are to respect the leaders of all three branches of government, presidents, senators, representatives, judges. This doesn't mean we can't disagree with them, but we should always do so in a way that demonstrates respect. In fact, the word of God tells us elsewhere in Luke 6, Jesus speaking, says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Right? Jesus says we should be loving toward them. Pray for them. That is all part of what we owe Caesar. What then do we owe God? Remember when Jesus held up that denarius, he flipped it back and forth likely, showed what was on the two sides. The point he made was clear. The image of Caesar was imprinted upon that coin and so that coin was what was due to Caesar, right? That was owed to him because his image was imprinted upon it. But, but go back to Genesis 1, right? When God created man, how did he create man? In his image. God's image is imprinted upon you. And so you owe God nothing less than the whole of your being. We see that play out in a few ways. First, faithful stewardship. A steward is someone who understands that all that he has is not his, but is something that belongs to someone else. And the owner has entrusted it to him for a time, but he has to deal with it rightly as the owner would want him to deal with it. Ultimately, all that we are and all that we have belongs to God. And so we must treat it as his and use it for his 
purpose is not to purchase some blessing, but because he is the owner of us. We are owned by him. It all is owed to him. He's created you in his image, but even more, he has redeemed you. He has purchased you with his blood. On the cross, Jesus died for your sins. That is the gospel. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So we not only owe him faithful stewardship of all that we have, we owe him absolute obedience. And I mentioned before that we would revisit the idea of qualified obedience that we owe to Caesar. What I meant by that was when Caesar tells us that we must do something that God forbids, or if he tells us we must not do something that God commands, then we must obey God. Right? We see this principle throughout Scripture. And in Exodus, right, the Hebrew midwives that, that refused to murder the little babies. In Daniel, when he insisted praying on praying to God and was thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right, who, who refused to obey the king instead of obeying God. And, and in Acts 4, we see that Peter and John would not stop preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, even though they were told that they must. And so they're brought before the authorities in Acts 5. And they clearly answered the charges. We must obey God rather than men. You see, our obedience to Caesar is always subservient to our obedience to God. Doesn't mean we can disregard Caesar's rules if we don't like them. But it means when there is a conflict between the laws of Caesar and the laws of God, the laws of God reign. They are not two equal balanced demands against us. We owe faithful stewardship to God. We owe absolute obedience to God. And finally, we owe him unreserved worship. Remember once more back in 1 Peter 2, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That, that word fear God, fear there is, is not an abject terror. It is, it is a reverence, a respect that is reserved for God and only God. It is, is the kind of respect that supersedes the respect that we show for the king. It is, it is a reverence and an awe. And we see a glimpse of it here in verse 17 when it says they marveled at him, but it goes beyond just marveling and being amazed. It is being amazed at him and then subsequently worshiping as we should. Right? Because that is what is owed to him. For the day is coming when Christ Jesus will return. And as we read together on that day, indeed it will be that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He will reign forever and ever. And that's the reason we worship him today. Not just in this room for one hour each Sunday, but with all of life. And one of the ways that we do that in all of life is by how we relate to government, to bring it back around. We needn't like the way our government or the authorities act, but how we respond to them speaks volumes of whether we truly believe what we say 
we believe. For Jesus our Lord says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us do all that we can to see that the glory goes to God. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you indeed would receive all honor and glory and praise. May it emanate from our lips as we sing your praises, but may it also be marked in our lives as we live out lives for you. May we do so in response to your glorious grace shown to us in your Son, Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.